Will to Survive, the story of Mira O'Connell's journey from victim to survivor. Episode 2, the first day of the rest of my life. This episode is brought to you by Mira O'Connell, independent damsel pro for damsel and defense, dedicated to equipping, empowering, and educating you on all the items needed to stay safe in your personal and professional life. Learn more today by going to my website, www.thewilltosurvive.com. That's thewill2survive.com. Sunday, July 21st, 2002. As my father and I walked away from the police station, the heaviness of the reality began to weigh down my body. My feet were carrying me along in the direction of my father, following him to his car several blocks away. But my body was almost floating above in a dream state. This had to be a dream. This couldn't be my new reality. I couldn't have just lived through what I lived through. It all began to soak in, and my processing systems were wanting to shut down due to overload. Once we got to the car, my dad told me that it was actually my ex-husband who had called him in the middle of the night to tell him something had happened. My ex said that a detective had called him at 4.30 in the morning and told him that there had been an incident at my house and that I was involved in a shooting but that I was fine. After he hung up with the police detective, my ex-husband decided there were still too many questions that he needed answers to. He loaded my son into the car and he drove to my neighborhood. He got to the edge of my street but there was a police barricade and the police officer didn't care why he needed to get inside. My ex-husband drove around to the other edge of the perimeter, and he got a more sympathetic police officer. He was instructed to stand by until one of the detectives could come talk to him. After a few moments, a male detective came over and told him that there had been a shooting at my house, and it resulted in a fatality, but that I was not the one that was hurt. He then called my father and told him everything that he knew about what had happened. They decided to meet in downtown Albuquerque at the police station and see if they could talk to me there. The police officers allowed my dad to come inside the station, but my ex-husband stayed in the parking lot for several hours with my son before he decided to leave and go home with him. My dad told him that he would call him as soon as we were released. When the police released me, they told me that my house would be held for several more hours as a crime scene and that no one could go in until they had completely processed it. While driving in the car, I contacted my ex-husband. I asked him if he could go to my house and get the keys for it and lock it up after the police were done with it. He agreed to do so. I didn't have any plans to go to my house anytime soon. And in fact, I didn't know if I'd ever go back to that house. I also asked him if I could come and see my son before we headed to the East Mountains where my parents lived. My ex-husband had also told me that he informed our minister of what had happened, so I decided to call him. He was very comforting on the phone. He didn't act shocked at all. He gave me words of reassurance and prayed with me. He told me that I had acted upon God's instinct and did exactly what had to be done. My father and I went to Walmart to get me some items that I would need for the rest of the week. I got a dress so that I could go to church with my parents the following day, and then I got some clothes for work and then some toiletries. After Walmart, we went to my ex-husband's apartment. It was so wonderful to see my son. 
I wrapped him in my arms, and I hugged him for what seemed like eternity. It was the first time in almost 24 hours that I felt somewhat normal. It was just one bit of reality that helped me realize that I was still here, that this wasn't just a dream. We then left, and we drove to my dad's house in the East Mountains, which is about 45 minutes outside of Albuquerque. My dad and I didn't talk much during the ride. I think he knew that I was still processing everything, and he gave me my space. While driving in the car, I looked over all the paperwork and business cards that I had been given over the night. The two victim advocates gave me their phone number and told me that they wanted me to come in to see them in the next few days, and that I needed to fill out some paperwork because I qualified for the victim impact program. The SANE nurse gave me discharge instructions. I had been to New Jersey just the week before on vacation with my mother and some family friends, and I had bought this amethyst-looking ring in Cape May, New Jersey. It had scratched my hand pretty good. My finger was swollen, so I was unable to get the ring off at the time, and so the police did let me keep the ring. The nurse told me because of the open wound I would need to get a tetanus shot, but the health department was currently out of them so I would need to go to my primary care provider and get one. They also explained to me that as the hours progressed and all the adrenaline drained out of my system, I began to experience the pain that I had been suppressing from the bumps and bruises of the struggle. They said I would also have a great dump of energy and feel very fatigued at some point. They prescribed 50 milligrams of Tylenol, and told me to get plenty of rest. When we got to the house, my stepmother was there, along with several of the neighbors. She must have called them and told them what had happened. And as well intended as they were, I wasn't ready to talk to any stranger about what had happened to me. Not yet. I politely excused myself and went to the back bedroom. I was completely exhausted, so I laid on the bed and tried to get a little bit of rest. But when I closed my eyes... The man's face was right there, and he was right on top of me again. I knew that I was going to have to try to get some sleep, so I asked my dad if he could go to the Walmart to get some melatonin for me. While he was at Walmart, I decided, since I couldn't stop thinking about it, maybe I should start calling some of my loved ones and tell them what had happened. I knew that they weren't going to be easy conversations, but I also knew that they had a right to know. So I began the calls. I called my mother, called my brother, I called my sister. I called the guy that I had been seeing who was still in Florida. They were all shocked, completely shocked. I remember my brother's conversation vividly. It stuck out in my mind. He was prior military, and he actually might have still even been serving. I can't remember, but I remember him telling me, even I haven't killed someone. And hearing that for the first time, I had to let it soak in that I had killed someone. That was part of who I was now. And nothing was going to change that. They all had painted a picture of me growing up of who I was. And killing someone was not in their picture. And so... I had to explain to them how everything happened 
and in explaining to them it helped me better understand it. I actually found comfort, even though I didn't think I initially would, in telling people about what happened. It was almost like every time I said it, every time I told the story, it had less impact on me. It was like I was giving its power away every time the words came out of my mouth. When my dad got back from Walmart with the melatonin, and after I'd finished telling my loved ones about what had happened to me, I went to the back bedroom and laid down. I laid on my back like I normally did, but every time I closed my eyes, the little movie played over and over again in my head. A masked man was on top of me. I found if I turned on my side that I was able to sleep a little bit better. Every little noise, every little sound woke me up. I had never really been a heavy sleeper, but now I was a very, very light sleeper. After some restlessness, I got up and I turned on the boombox that was in the room. My stepmother used it to practice her choir songs. I turned it on to some radio station and played it the rest of the evening while I dozed off trying to go back to sleep. But my body and my mind and my soul were all physically exhausted. And after jolting awake a few times and tossing and turning, I was finally able to fall asleep. While I was sleeping, the Albuquerque world was a buzz about everything that had happened at my house. All the news stations, the newspapers covered a story about the woman that killed the would-be rapist. Sunday, July 21st, 2002. I woke up. I wouldn't say that I was refreshed, but at least I did get a little bit of sleep. I went in to take a shower, and it was very nice to feel the water wash over me. It was almost as if I felt like maybe it would wash away what had happened. Then maybe, after I got out of the shower, it would all be gone. I wouldn't have to think about it anymore. I wouldn't have to have it a part of my life. But it would never be gone. It was always be a part of my life. I went with my parents to their church. I'd been to their church many times before, and I knew the people casually. I didn't have any good friends that went to their church. They were all my parents' friends. The minister was very sweet, and he had me come up to the front. He wanted to offer me a special blessing. My stepmother and father accompanied me to the front of the congregation, and with heads bowed, the minister prayed over us. Thank you, God, for sparing Mira and for giving her the strength to fight against evil. When evil asked her, Do you want to die? She responded, No, I want to live. That was actually very comforting. I felt wonderful to be in church and to be given a blessing for something that I felt like maybe I shouldn't be blessed about. And don't get me wrong, I felt completely blessed that I was still alive. But I just didn't see at that moment in my life how anything like this happening could ever be considered a blessing. After the service, congregants came up to me and offered platitudes and other sayings to help me feel comforted in this time. 
But I remember one of them. She was a correctional officer, and she told me, like with pity, it must not have been easy to do what you did. I didn't like the way she said that to me. It wasn't hard to protect myself. I don't even remember making a conscious decision to do it. I just did it. This primal instinct inside of me just responded. And I just felt like God was there with me. So was that a bad thing? Had I done a bad thing? Why is she pitying me? Why is she looking at me like I had done something wrong, almost, the way she said it? My dad overheard her saying that, and he got a little upset, too. So it must have not just been me that took it a certain way. After church, my father took me into town, and we picked up my son, and then picked up my car at the house. I didn't go into my house. I didn't even go up to the front door at that point. I wasn't sure when I would be going back into the house. I did, however, ask my ex-husband to stop by the house later that night to check on my cat. It was a cat that I'd had since college, and she was asleep on my bed when I got attacked. I knew she was probably very traumatized. He also was going to pick up some more clothing and items that I needed. He said that when he got to the house, he noticed in the kitchen there was a potted plant that had been knocked over by the window, and when he went down the hallway to the back bedroom, there was newspapers lining the floorway of the hall and had already been blood-soaked. He said in the bedroom there was blood splattered on the bed frame and the armoire, the same armoire that my grandmother gave him and I for our wedding present. I made arrangements for my son and I to stay with one of my old neighbors in the duplexes that I used to live in before I bought the house. We planned to stay there for about a week. I decided I wasn't going to go to work the next day. I had to call my boss and tell him what had happened. At this point, I felt like I had told my story thousands of times already, and it had only been less than 48 hours since this had happened. He, of course, was very understanding and said, That's fine. Take as many days off as you would like. I had worked for the company for about a year, and they were very nice people. I remember one of my co-workers had been telling me about his therapy sessions that he was having after the breakup of a relationship and I decided to call him and I got his therapist's name and phone number. I was able to leave her a message and she actually got back to me and I set up an appointment for the very next day. The police also gave me the name of an emergency response cleanup company that went in after crime scenes to get rid of biohazardous materials. So I contacted them as well. July 22, 2002. It was a very busy day. I went downtown and I met with the victim advocates group. It was the same two ladies that had been out the night of my attack. They gave me a lot of information about how I could apply for victim reparations through the state. They advised me on making an insurance claim to help pay for some of the damages and pay for the emergency cleanup company. They also gave me this article. It was an article about another victim, a woman in Florida. The woman's name was Sharon Desanio, and she had been shot and blinded 
in the 1980s by a man and then kidnapped and raped and left for dead. She then went on to be an activist for victim rights with the Florida Attorney General. The woman who gave me this article about her encouraged me to contact her and gave me her phone number, but I don't know that I ever did that. If I ever called, I didn't get through to her because I do not remember ever speaking to her. But I was very encouraged by the woman's story and about her resilience. One of the things from the article that stuck out in my mind that made a big imprint on my journey to recovery was the passage that stated, The man who attacked me took 11 hours of my life, says Sharon. Right from that hospital bed, I decided he wouldn't take any more. And it was in that moment I realized I didn't have to be a victim. I could reclaim my life and be a survivor. That the man that night, just as she had said, echoed in my life too. He tried to rape me. He could have killed me, but he wasn't able to. And I wasn't going to let him kill the rest of my life. After the victim advocates meeting, I went just a few blocks to the police station where they had requested that I give a follow-up statement, anything that I may have forgotten or any minor details that may have surfaced over the last few days. I don't recall anything significant coming out during that statement, but I gave them a statement as they requested. They also asked me to write a statement to give to the press. Because they had had so many requests from the press to do an interview with the woman who had killed the serial rapist. Here is the statement that I prepared and that was released to the Albuquerque Press. I awoke to every person's worst nightmare. I don't know that any person can prepare for an attack on their life, but I can say that I took precautions. I had attained a limited amount of self-defense training, and the night of the attack, I secured all the windows and doors before going to sleep. I do not own a gun, and I do not feel that if I had owned one, it would have helped in this situation. I'm an ordinary person. I had no time to think. I merely acted on my instincts to survive, and the only reason I survived is my strong will and determination and by the grace of God. I thank God and appreciate everyone's continual prayers and support for myself and all that have been impacted by this traumatic event. I finished my afternoon out by going to my first therapy session. I enjoyed talking to the therapist. It was a relief, kind of letting go of the burden to be able to tell the story to someone who I felt like it wasn't burdening them. I felt like when I told it to my family members, I was just transferring the burden from me to them. And I could tell that it was really difficult for them to hear the story. Even to this day, it is. After the therapy, I finished up my day and went home to where I was staying. I was still trying to come to a new normal. Still trying to integrate and weave into my new tapestry this thing that had happened to me. I found that 
distracting myself with the daily activities helped not think about the attack. But in every waking moment, when I wasn't being distracted by something else, it was there. It was in my subconscious. It was in my conscious. It was pervasive in my life. The details of it, the reasoning behind it, the things that I still didn't know or understand about why it happened. And as difficult as the days were, the nights were even more challenging. Trauma is a tricky mistress, and many things can set off the trauma response. A sound, a smell, or returning to the place where something happened, like where a car wreck happened. And for me, that was my bed. But I had to return to my bed every night. So the anxiety response was very difficult to fight. I was determined to learn ways to overcome it. I hoped that therapy would help me learn how to not be afraid of going to sleep. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my story. The Will to Survive is an 11-part series about how a traumatic event changed the course of my life and my road to recovery. If you'd like to learn more about my story, please visit my website at www.thewilltosurvive.com. That's the will number 2 survivecom